fun. Last Wednesday night, we started um, in the book of Galatians, and it was an overview, sort of an introductory message to our study, verse by verse, through this letter to the churches of Galatia. And so we're going to begin tonight, our text tonight is verses 1 through 5. And so you follow along as I read. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from, the pre- from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Last Wednesday when we started here, we stated how uh, the main purpose of this epistle, uh, the main purpose for writing to these churches, was to preserve the purity of the Gospel. Uh, Paul is going to talk about uh, grace versus works uh, all throughout this letter. And Paul states, even in chapter 1, that there were those who would present another gospel, which Paul says is not another. And what he means by that, again, is that it's not another one of the same kind. It's not equal to. It's not sufficient. It's a perversion. And Paul says in verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ, unto another gospel. And then he says in verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so Paul says, not only was it troubling to him, but it was troubling to the church because, or the churches, because it was perverting the gospel of Christ. And without a right gospel, you don't have right doctrine, a right foundation for anything else. And what we said was that there was a group of converted Jews who had introduced a system of works salvation. And basically what that was, was that these Jews were saying that any Gentile believer also needed to be circumcised. So they had to have circumcision and keep ceremonial laws if they were truly to be saved. And the result of that was this weird mixture of grace and works. They weren't denying that salvation was by faith in Christ, but they were adding something to it, adding works to it. And so this first chapter of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia begins to immediately deal with this problem of legalism or works for salvation. And certainly Paul, knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that it's only the gospel, it's not a surprise to us that Paul would start right in here and he would uh, be very assertive and aggressive in his defense of the faith. And we had said how a lot of people say that this is Paul's fighting epistle. There's a lot of different things about this, his epistle here to the churches of Galatia than other churches that he wrote to. And so that's uh, where this is going, and it goes right now. In chapter 1, we're going to consider three main things, and we'll not look at all of chapter 1 tonight, of course. But we're breaking chapter 1 down into three main things. Verses 1 through 5 is going to be the declaration of the gospel. 
verses 6 through 9, the distortion of the gospel. And then the last part of this chapter, the dynamic of the gospel. We'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you'd give us uh, peace here tonight around your word. And Father, I pray that you would uh, help our minds and our hearts to be attentive. And it's a long week, and the middle of the week we can be weary and tired. And I'm thankful for each one that is committed uh, to being here tonight. And I again pray that we would have a purposeful heart in engaging with the Word of God and help us to see you and give glory to you for who you are. Thank you that we can assemble as a body. And I pray that your blessing would be upon the evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, consider the declaration of the gospel. We read verses 1 through 5 already here, and these are our text verses. The thing I want to point out to you right away, though, is some, just some introductory remarks that the Apostle Paul makes. In verse 1, we find right away here that Paul establishes his authority. Verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Notice that Paul here establishes his authority. He says, I'm an apostle, and I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. He says here that his call was not of man. Notice in verse 1 again, an apostle, not of men. His call was not of man. We, if you remember, uh, the, the, Paul's salvation... And the call of God on his life uh, came on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Just turn over there with me. Keep your place. And look in Acts chapter 9, in verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so we, we see when Paul says, My call of apostleship was not of men. It was from God. It was from Jesus Christ. And then he states here as well that his commission was not of men either. He says, an apostle, not of men, neither by man. His commission to do uh, what, what he was told to do didn't come from men. His authority doesn't come from men. It came from God. And in Acts chapter 9, again, if you look farther, a little farther down in Acts chapter 9, you find that his commission came from God through a man named Ananias. In verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul says, right away, he's establishing his authority because of what he's going to say next. But he says, my apostleship, my commission, didn't come from men, it came from God. And so as this epistle will unfold, 
There are some who questioned Paul's apostolic authority. There were some who questioned the source of his message. And so he confronts this in the very first verse of this epistle, claiming his authority comes from God himself. And the authority for all that's going to follow in this epistle is established right here. And the application that I want to make here, just briefly, is this. If we lose sight of the fact that a man called and commissioned by God to declare the Word of God has God-given authority behind it, we're not going to respond correctly to the Word of God. What was the response of some of these? They were questioning His authority. They were questioning the message. And the same can be true of us. If we lose sight of that fact that a God-called and God-commissioned man to declare the Word of God has God-given authority, we're not going to respond rightly when the Lord begins to speak through His Word. Instead of as unto the Lord, it's going to be unto men. Remember how Paul praised the Thessalonian believers for their response to the Word of God? In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, Paul said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Declaring the word of God is really the ultimate authority. When a preacher stands and gives the word, or, or when, when there's an issue that needs to be addressed and Bible principles are, are laid out from, from the man of God, listen, if there's not a, a right understanding or remembrance that there's authority from God behind it, we're not going to respond right to it. And the response will be fleshly, and the word of God won't effectually work in us. And so Paul establishes his authority right away. You get to verse 2, and we find here that Paul addresses churches and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Paul doesn't use the singular, and in so doing, I believe what Paul is doing is recognizing the autonomy of churches in the same region. And you say, okay, well, why do you bring that out? Why do you highlight that? It doesn't seem like that's a big deal. Well, first of all, number one, God's Word is always a big deal. If it's in there, it's a big deal. Amen? It's inspired of of the Spirit of God. But secondly, it's important because it highlights again that anytime you see church or churches... In the Bible, they are always local, visible, tangible assemblies. There's no such thing as a universal, collective, invisible body of Christ or church in the Scriptures. The Scriptures know no such thing. And so it is notable that Paul says to the churches of Galatia, he's recognizing the autonomy of individual churches all in the same region. And then in verse 3... Paul reminds them of grace and peace. These are introductory remarks that Paul is making before he gets into the issue at hand. He says in verse 3, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about grace and peace recently 
closing out 2 Thessalonians, Paul mentions the same thing. Paul did this with all of the churches that he wrote to. But Paul reminds them of grace and peace. And I want to remind you of something that we had talked about before. Grace always comes before peace. Grace always comes before peace. We cannot have the peace of God until we've made peace with God. But we only make peace with God that's only possible because of the grace of God in our life. And grace is something that is necessary for all of the Christian life from start to finish. There's no part of it that is not included with the grace of God or because of the grace of God. And we had talked about how there's never a time when we outgrow the need for the grace of God. What is grace again? Grace is divine favor. Grace is, is, is unmerited unearned divine favor. Salvation comes from unmerited favor and love of God. Not something we deserve, but grace is also divine enabling. And so salvation comes from unearned favor of God, but grace is also divine enabling for living the Christian life. It's not possible to live the Christian life without God's grace, His divine enabling. Listen, the Christian life is hard. It's hard. And I, it, you know, if someone says, oh no, the Christian life is easy. Well, friend, I, it's not, my Christian life doesn't seem to be easy. It's easy in the Lord because of His sufficiency. But it's fraught with trouble and battle and hardship. Paul wouldn't have said in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. He wouldn't have said, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, if it was so easy. It's hard. You know it's true. That you struggle Back and forth sometimes. Sometimes we're up and down. That happens in the Christian life. Listen, the Christian life is hard and we can't live it without the grace of God. How many times have you recognized this in your life? Maybe there are things that you know need to be different or should change in your life. Maybe you know what you should be. Or maybe you know at least what you ought to be. Or at least what you want to be. But you have a hard time being. We can get frustrated if we're trying so hard, but with the wrong power source. We're trying so hard. I know what I want to be. And sometimes I'm frustrated in this Christian life and I'm working so hard to try to do right or be this. And I get frustrated and down and unhappy Listen, getting, getting where we ought to be, or even where we want to be, cannot be done by us working and trying to control. We need grace, divine enabling, for it to accomplish. We get there by simply yielding today to the Lord and asking God to work His will in me today. That's how we get there. By simply yielding to the Lord today.
moment by moment, and then trusting Him, trusting Him that He is going to give His grace, that He is going to do the work. That's what Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Praise the Lord that we have a desire to grow. Praise the Lord that we want to be a certain thing or we want to be at a a certain level. Praise the Lord for that. But I can't control that and keep at just trying so hard to make it happen. What I need to do is say, Lord, you make me what you want me to be. I yield to you today. I need your divine enabling today. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who's doing the performing? The one who began the work. Amen? And Paul believed that. So Paul relates that grace and peace come from God and from Jesus Christ. And then you look at verses 4 and 5, and this is where we'll obviously spend the rest of our time since this is our text here. But I just want to point out to you that Paul, after his introductory remarks here to the churches of Galatia, Paul points to God's ultimate intentions. Look at verse 4. He says, "...who gave himself for our sins." Of course, that's tied to verse 3 because... He's talking about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here Paul points to God's ultimate intentions. Paul's anticipating something. He's anticipating what he's going to say about the gospel of grace. That's coming in this letter. And so Paul declares here right away that it's Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. And listen, we read over words. And we don't let them just sink in and drive home that Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins. I want you to think of it. Think of it, that He gave Himself for our sins. Who is this? This is the Lord of glory. This is the King of kings. This is the one who left heaven's glory, who emptied Himself of all but love, as the song says, and bled for Adam's race. Listen, this is the theme, the entire theme of the Word of God. Jesus Christ giving Himself as a sacrifice for sin. What a wondrous exchange that is. His death so that I can have life. Now, we're all tired here, I guess. We've already had a long week. We need to engage our mind here. The thought that you sit here tonight redeemed. Peace with God. Because Jesus gave Himself for your sin. Glory is right. How do we operate? How do we live day by day completely unmoved by the fact that I was an enemy of God 
condemned to die. I could never pay my sin debt. I could never uh, give back to God what I owe. I could never earn His favor. I could never do anything to, to, to merit the love of God. And yet I sit here redeemed because Jesus Christ gave Himself for my sin. What a wondrous exchange. Abraham told his son Isaac, God would provide himself a lamb. What a prophetic statement. The Bible tells us in Titus 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Galatians 2.20, Paul says it in the very next chapter, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amazing love. How can it be that God himself would die for me? For me, who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? Listen, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ. There is no life for me outside of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loved me and gave himself for me. There's a reason why Paul could sing with joy even in the midst of persecution. There's a reason why Paul's entire life was solely devoted to this one who gave himself for me. I think that we ought to see ourselves as a lot more wretched simply because of a lack of appreciation for what the Lord has done for us. And I don't say that, I don't know your heart. I don't know how much you appreciate your salvation. But I know what my tendency is. And I know that my tendency is, the longer I'm saved, some, it, it ought to be that the longer I'm saved, the more in love with the Lord I get the more thankful I ought to be for what Christ did for me. But so often the tendency is, the longer I'm saved, the more I forget what He saved me from, and the less appreciative I am for all that Christ did for me. He gave Himself, verse 4, for our sins. What was the reason? What was the purpose? Verse 4 tells us. Look at the second part of it. He gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. What was the purpose? To deliver us from this present evil world. Stop and think about that. 
What is God's evaluation of this present world? You see it? Evil. God's evaluation of this present world is that it's evil. Let me ask you a question. What's your evaluation of it? First John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Christ died to deliver us from this present evil world. Why then would we want to gravitate towards it? You ever heard of a worldly Christian? A worldly Christian is one who doesn't appreciate that Christ gave himself for my sin. He died to deliver us. Not just in the future tense, as in glorification one day. He died to deliver us, not just in that. That is happening. We're going to have a glorified body. We're going to be relieved. We're going to be glorified one day in a future sense, but, but also in a present sense. He, he died to deliver us from this present evil world, present tense. What is that? Sanctification. Sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What, what did Paul say here? He said he died to deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God. This is the will of God. He saved us from our sins. It's the will of God that we be set free from sin. Why then would we want to or allow ourselves to be entangled again in the bondage of sin? Whose servant are you? Well, the one you yield yourself to. The ultimate intention of the Lord is that He died for our sins to deliver us from this present world. And then verse 5, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The ultimate intention of the Lord is that He receive the glory. He gave Christ to die. He raised Christ from the dead. He saves us by His grace. He delivers us from this evil world. He is the one who gets all the glory. Paul establishes here for us in the opening remarks that salvation is all of God and all of God's grace from start to finish. From the moment you're saved to the end of your Christian life, it's all of God and all of His grace that He would receive the glory. And this is important to understand because of what comes next. Paul's going to argue, grace or works? Because if it's of grace, then it's not of works. If it's of works, then it can't possibly be of grace. And so, Paul is establishing that salvation is all of God and all of God's grace from start to finish. Your Christian life is all of God, 
all of God's grace from start to finish. You sit here tonight because of God's grace. He is worthy to be praised because of His grace. Amen. Next time we're going to talk about the distortion of the gospel. Paul gets into the issue at hand when he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So we're going to consider the distortion of the gospel next time. But for tonight, the takeaway for tonight is what? It's all of God. It's all of His grace who gave Himself. That God would do that for you. That God would do that for me. Amazing love. What should we, how should we live in return? Humbled. Grateful. Amen? Worshipful unto the Lord because of His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that You'd help us to be thoughtful and mindful on these things and Lord, to never take for granted that we are only saved by the grace of God. We only live day by day by the grace of God. We can't live this Christian life except by the grace of God. And We can be frustrated at times, but when we're resting in Your grace and trusting in You, Father, we understand that it is You who will do the work. You're faithful to do the work that You started And Lord, that we can trust you. And all we need to do is yield today. And your grace enables. So Father, I pray that you'd just encourage our hearts tonight with this. And Lord, to give you worship and praise and honor that you are worthy of. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.